Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew standing at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Food is emotionally very powerful. The scent of frying fish and garlic for several years produced a powerful emotion of fear in me and my wife, Sarah. What happened was we were living on a seminary campus in the, about 10 years ago, and the apartments that we lived in had a common venting system for the stoves. So three floors of apartments, the stoves all went through the same piping of venting. About 7 o'clock in the morning, the fan would turn on in the apartment below us, and within seconds, our house was being inundated, our apartment, with frying garlic and fish. That, for the Chinese family below us, was the scent of a morning breakfast. For us, it was great fear. We usually ran as quickly as we could to turn on the fan and send it up to the guy above us. Now, if they had been pumping bacon and coffee through the venting system, it would have been the scent of joy and pleasure. Instead, it was fear, and we would run trying to change the scent and get it out of there. How about another one? Uh, You've heard me talk about this. Apple pie and cooked cabbage. They go together really well if you haven't tried it before. In my mind, they do because they represent what my grandmother always had cooking or ready to eat when we arrived at her house in western Pennsylvania. She's a Czechoslovakian native, or, you know, her, her heritage, and so stuffed cabbage, and then just being an American mom, making apple pie. And so anytime we entered her house, you had these two scents wafting in. And to me, apple pie and cooked cabbage were love, being welcomed, a place I always wanted to be. Food and the scent creates powerful memories and emotions that stir us. Because food is central to relationships with family and with friends. It's around food that conversations happen, that you laugh, that you connect with others, that you enjoy things, that relationships are deepened, that you find belonging. And think about it. There are two basic human needs that we actually engage in actively, eating and sleeping. And only one of those two can we do together. When I'm asleep, I don't know you're there. But when I'm eating, I can be connecting with you on the deepest of human levels. And humans enjoy food on a different level than animals do. Most people who study animals suggest that while animals have taste buds that range in in as much as twice as many taste buds as us, or or half, the average human has 10,000 taste buds, but some animals have up to 20,000. But the reason why animals have taste buds is so they know what not to eat. They can taste poison in a plant or meat that is rancid, and they avoid it. It's purely for survival that they have taste buds. Why do we have taste buds? 
for pleasure. It's amazing that God would create us in such a way that food in and of itself is a gift, a gift of God to humanity. In Genesis 2.9, in the midst of the creation of the garden and putting Adam and Eve in it, it says, out of the ground the Lord caused made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The descriptors there are of enjoyment. God created creation and your ability to taste it for your pleasure because he enjoys your joy. Food is God-given and spiritual. The Book of Common Prayer talks about a sacrament as something that is an outward and visible sign, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So baptism, the outward and visible sign, is water. The inward and spiritual grace is renewal, new birth in Christ. But there's another word that I like to use, which is sacramental. It's not one of the two main sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper, but sacramental are those, those physical things that reveal the spiritual things. It's things like friendship or music or food where God actually uses tangible human creation-oriented things to help us to connect to Him, to see His love and grace and mercy for us. And in that sense, sacramental, things that are sacramental, fit with that Celtic idea of thin places, which we've talked about in here before. The Celtic spirituality talked about those places where the secular and the sacred seem to intertwine in a way where when you're in the midst of the secular, you're experiencing the sacred. You're getting a touch or a taste of heaven. A number of years back when Sarah and I were leaving Richmond, some friends that we had made, uh, newly made in the, in the year before, wanted to take us out on a final dinner before we left. So we got a babysitter, they got a babysitter, and they took us to a restaurant we could never have afforded. It was one of the nicer restaurants in Richmond. They paid for everything, and they ordered everything. And over the course of two and a half hours, every single thing that hit my plate and then my mouth was fantastic. And the whole time, the conversation flowed freely with laughter and stories and questions and connecting. And I remember in the midst of that dinner thinking, I think this is what heaven is like. Some element of all of my senses and my spiritual side being connected with people, good friends over fantastic food. Your food should be more than pragmatic, I'm hungry, I need to eat, and less than gluttonous. That's all I can think about. Food can actually be something to cause you to rejoice and worship, and in a sense, to smell and taste and see God and God's love for you. He made you this way, to enjoy food and to enjoy meals with others. And it fits it fits the story of Christmas, right? We're in the Lenten season, but at Christmas, we have the incarnation. The incarnation is when the holy and eternal, the infinite God, becomes finite and touchable. Do you know that when Jesus walked the earth, he sweat? And when he was sweaty, he probably stunk because he was human. The infinite and invisible God became touchable 
stinky, human. And it's a reminder that God wants to use this creation, the very tangible world we live in, to reveal himself. That food itself is a gift of love from God. And that's why I think the Christian calling that we talk about in here should include the table. Here's what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be in relationship with God, right? That's what it is, to be in relationship with God. And so when we talk about being a Christian, we want to talk about how we cultivate our relationship with God. So in some ways of talking about it, the goal of the Christian life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In another way of talking about it, it's to know God and to make Him known to the world. Or even going directly to Jesus, distilling the commandments, our goal in life is to love God and to love our neighbor. I think no matter how you word the the direction of the Christian life, the table is meant to be central to it. Food with one another is central to enjoying God and actually learning to love others because it's central to being human. And the table was central to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, which we read, Jesus is walking along, and we read, as he passed, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And then, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So the events of what happened here is Jesus sees Matthew. He calls him, come follow me. Matthew responds. He rises from his tax booth, leaves his tax booth, and follows Jesus. It's a calling into discipleship. The very next thing we get is another scene. It might have happened that night. It might have been a week later. It's Jesus is reclining at Matthew's house, which is also recorded in the Gospel of Luke, with a bunch of Matthew's friends. Now, the word recline there, that Jesus was reclined at table, is a unique word for eating in, in Greek. It actually means you're having a feast. There was another term for just you were hungry, you had lunch. This one meant you were throwing a party, a feast. You reclined at the Feast of Passover. You reclined when the entire village gathered to celebrate the return of the prodigal son. You reclined when you wanted to honor somebody, and that's what Matthew was doing. He was throwing a feast in order to honor Jesus, who had called him, him of all people, to be his disciple. And of course, Matthew invited the people he knew well, tax collectors and the most sinful people in the community. He wanted his friends to meet the Jesus who had changed his life. The Pharisees come along and aren't very happy about this. When they saw what was happening, they didn't say to Jesus, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What do they care? Well, Eating and who you ate with was actually a bigger deal in the first century than it was, than it is today. R.T. France, one of the New Testament scholars who wrote about this, said, in the ancient world, a shared meal was a clear sign of identification. And For a Jewish religious teacher like Jesus to share a meal with such people as tax collectors and sinners 
was scandalous, let alone to do so in the unclean house of the tax collector Matthew. Kenneth Bailey, who's also a New Testament scholar and had lived in the Middle East for decades, suggests that this is an ongoing case because meals and who you eat with around the world is very important. He says, to eat with another person in the Mideast today is sacramental. It's a sacramental act signifying acceptance on a very deep level. Many times over the decades, he wrote, I have stayed to partake of a meal in a village because of this reality. I neither wanted nor needed the food and could not afford the time. But by eating with a person, I was accepting them on a basic and fundamental level. If Jesus was truly a man of God, if he was a righteous rabbi, then he should have known to never eat with sinners and tax collectors. So why does Jesus do it? Well, Jesus explains in verses 12 and 13. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, look, the sick are the ones who need a doctor. And if you're going to really ask the question, like if you're a religious teacher in that day and age, you're supposed to only eat with people who are, who are like you, who are of the same caste as you, who is of the same caste as Jesus? Right? In a caste system, the Brahmin are at the top. They're the closest to being spiritual and, and chosen. Well, Jesus is actually God. So who gets to eat with him? Nobody. Unless what Jesus is doing is reversing the entire order of everything when it comes to social caste and the way of entering into God. Jesus, by his eating, is revealing the gospel. The gospel is by grace, as we talked about in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in our confession of faith. And as John 3.16 says, Jesus came for the whole world. He came for all. When Jesus was eating with people, he was revealing his intention that the way to God was now entirely different. It was through him that anyone could be made clean. Anyone could enter in. Anyone could have a seat at the table. And the table was a primary aspect of Jesus' ministry to seek and save the lost. You know, all you have to do is read through the Gospels and consider how many times food factors into the Gospel narratives. Go read through the book of Luke, and you will find that time and time again, food is a part of what is being talked about. In the Gospel of John, what is Jesus' first miracle? John chapter 2, Jesus takes water and turns it into wine. Not only wine, an exorbitant amount of wine. It is a wedding feast meaning the entire village and all the extended family are gathered to celebrate around food and drink. They run out of wine, and Jesus says, I have come as Lord of the feast to bring the goodness of the best of wine for you to enjoy your time together and to celebrate this marriage with food and drink. His first miracle in John is the wedding at Cana. And what's the very last thing Jesus does in John, in the Gospel of John? It's John chapter 21. It's after the resurrection. And Jesus is sitting on the beach, 
broiling fish. Peter, out in the boat, sees that it's Jesus and comes running, diving in to enjoy a meal with Jesus, a meal in which Peter is forgiven and reinstated. From the beginning to the end, Jesus is saying, through food, I'm going to show you what I'm about. And in the middle of the Gospel of John, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then gives this interpretation, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. The food you really need is me. In Luke chapter 19, in a story similar to the one that we've just read about Matthew, Jesus walks into Jericho. He looks up into the tree and sees a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. To put this in the vernacular, Jesus is saying, hey, Zacchaeus, do you want to grab a bite to eat? And Zacchaeus' response to that is, I repent. Jesus says, let's eat, and Zacchaeus immediately admits his sin and tries to pay back all that he has swindled and becomes a new man, simply because Jesus says, let me come to your house and let's eat together. There's incredible power in the invitation to eat. In the book that we're looking at, Surprise the World, our author Michael Frost notes that Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, to talk about himself. It's a, it's a messianic term about when God would come to restore and right all things and send his Messiah. Three times Jesus uses it of himself. He says, the son of man came, Mark 10, 45, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Luke 19, 10, the portion of the Zacchaeus story, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And in Luke 7, 34, Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. By all accounts, one of these is not like the others. The first two line up with what we think of Jesus. He is God. He is Savior. But how is eating and drinking an apt self-descriptor for the Son of God? Jesus is strategic about food and drink. He recognizes that food and drink are an example of God's love for all humanity. He gave us the taste buds. He gave us the gift of food. He gave us the gift of community eating around a meal so that every single meal, even for those who don't recognize God as God, is a gift from him to them. It is an act of grace available to all, which is what Jesus is, God's love available to all. Dan Hamill wrote, when Jesus ate, he transformed a cultural ceremony of biological necessity into a theological proclamation. It formed a core of his message and revealed his vision for the kingdom of God. 
Jesus saw the power of the table to usher in the kingdom of God. He did many other things. He preached, and he healed, and he prayed, and he ministered, but he ministered through the table time and time again. There's power in the table. Michael Frost, in Surprise the World, uses the, the acronym BELLS, Bless, Eat, Listen, Learn, Scent. As I was rereading through this this week, one of the things that Corky mentioned last week is that, that Michael Frost talks about how do we live questionable lives. And by questionable lives, he means how do we live lives that are impactful? How can we be effective for God? How can we have a lasting influence for the kingdom of God through our lives? And what he talks about is what would be different than our culture today? What would make people stand up and say, what's, what's different about you? And I think that my understanding of what he was writing in his introductory chapters is there's really two things that mark out what, would, what it would look like to live differently. It would be to be deeply spiritual in the sense of connected to and experiencing God. If we are people who experience God on the deepest level, who know his love for us, who are deeply in love with him, that is a unique thing in a secular and searching culture that we live in today. People want to touch the divine. And if you've experienced God in Jesus Christ, you know the divine personally. And to the extent that that's a deeply authentic part of who you are, that is a draw to the entire world. And a second besides deeply spiritual is deeply relational. We live in a transient culture. People do not grow up and stay in the same village for centuries. We are busy people. Our lives are incredibly frenetic, and we're filled with technology that is supposed to connect us to one another but keeps us actually disconnected more often. If we live lives of deep relationship with family and friends, where friends are like family, that is an incredible draw. It is something that will cause people to say, I want what is there. People move to Vienna because they want to be a part of community, but a step beyond that, because I know many of you don't experience it, is to have deep, enmeshed friendships. People are desperate for connection. Sometimes they don't even realize it because they're too busy, they've moved too often, and they're too tethered to their devices to recognize what is hurting inside of them is a longing to be loved. People who are connected to God and connected to one another will cause people to say, I want what's there. And that's why Michael Frost uses the, the terms up, in, and out. That if we are people who are connected up to God, into one another as the body of Christ, and out into the world relationally, people will want to be a part of what is going on. And I think the table, as he talks about, and in my own experience, eating together is a primary means of doing all three, of connecting to God, to one another, and out into the community. Don't underestimate the power of eating together. It doesn't even have to be a spiritual conversation for Christ to be present. You know that. Simply be present with and for others over some food. Eating with others is a main way to live out our missional calling in the kingdom of God. Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford wrote, 
Sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. Here's my experience. You cannot not grow in love and compassion for those you eat with regularly. You cannot not grow in love and compassion for those you eat with regularly. So find people outside of your normal circles and eat with them regularly, and your love for them will grow. Eating together shapes us as well, relationally, socially, and spiritually. Barry Jones, in a great article, he's a a professor of pastoral theology at Dallas Seminary, wrote, in a fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention-deficit culture, Christians need to recover the art of a slow meal around a table with people we care about. Table fellowship doesn't make a list of the classical spiritual disciplines, but in the midst of today's world, Christian spirituality has something important to say about the way that sharing tables nourishes us both physically and spiritually. You see, eating together, eating with others, connects us to them, and it shapes us. And it's an opportunity to experience God in the midst of the food and the community. Here at CCV, our vision and values involves being externally focused, extended family. My primary way, my primary way, this is me personally, my primary way of being externally focused and developing extended family is not inviting people to church. I don't actually invite people to this church. I invite them to lunch. I get coffee with them. I have family dinners that are like extended family dinners. I meet up with them for happy hour. Or I see them at social gatherings and neighborhood parties. The people that I'm closest with in life, whether they're inside the church or whether they're agnostic and don't go to anything, are the ones I eat with the most. In other words, Food and drink are my strategy for being externally focused in extended family, for knowing and loving others. And eating together has a benefit for us too. It can be heavenly. You know, the, the Bible has... Uh, has language that is metaphoric and evocative language when it's trying to hit on things that we can't fully understand. And one of those is eternity. You know that you cannot actually comprehend eternity because you're a human, you're finite, right? So when the Bible is talking about hell, it uses evocative language, fire and brimstone, weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness. It's meant to evoke ideas of fear and pain, and suffering, and loneliness, and God's wrath. But what's the language, the metaphor for heaven? A big dinner. Eating to your full, together with others, in complete joy. In Isaiah 25, 6, Isaiah is is talking about the day when the Lord returns and rights all wrongs. In other words, heaven, the resurrection, the life to come. And what does he say? On this mountain, 
the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The kingdom banquet was looked forward to for centuries in Israel. When Jesus comes along, he gives two parables to talk about the kingdom that is to come, the wedding feast and the great banquet, both of which talk about people being gathered in and enjoying themselves at a feast. And then in Revelation 19.9, at the end of the Bible, it is blessed are those who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a wedding reception full of food and drink that's being talked about. My experience is this, all meals, especially with really good food and great company, are a picture, a foretaste of heaven. So do it because it's enjoyable. Don't overlook the spiritual joy, connection to God, and the worship that a meal offers you. Food should not be simply pragmatic, nor should it be gluttonous. It can be sacramental. And so Michael Frost calls us throughout the, the weeks to do this very simple thing, eat with three people. That's what he says, eat with three people this week. At least one person inside your church community, at least one person outside your church community. He says you have 21 meals in a week. Some of us do more than that. Some of us do less. On top of that, you could throw in your coffee breaks. And you could really kill this bird with one stone. You could invite three people to lunch. Then the idea is to do it again the week after. And again the week after that and make a habit of it. Know yourself. Be ad hoc and spontaneous if that's how you are. Take advantage of when you have a moment or a time to do this. You may not have a, a week that's free, but maybe next week you will. So be willing to be ad hoc and spot, spontaneous, but also look for ways to be consistent. There is incredible power in weekly gatherings around food to create extended family. If you want to have brothers and sisters, people that feel like family, you will need to eat with them regularly over the course of years. It will be costly because it'll take time, money, and it'll change your priorities. But in the process, it will reshape how you think about your identity, your calling, and your priorities. Jesus, when he was here, he preached, he healed, and he died for us. And on the night before he died, what did he do? He had a meal. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, wrote, when Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, when Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He didn't even give them a set of scriptural texts. He gave them a meal. Jesus took bread. He broke it gave it to his disciples, said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. That's the gospel message. God gave his son to be broken 
and given to you. You do nothing to deserve it. All you do is receive it and are filled. Jesus ate with the rich and with the poor peasants. He ate with very religious people and with secular and sinful people. Everyone who ate with him was changed. The religious were challenged. Sinners were forgiven. No one was the same. The story of Jesus' table fellowship is anyone can come to the table. But everyone who comes must give up their agenda. Like Matthew, you leave what you were and you follow Jesus. That's how the invitation to Jesus' table is received. The good news is we're all invited. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your gift of your Son, that he became man and was broken and given to us, that we who partake of him by faith might be filled and have new and eternal life. Give us the courage, wisdom, and grace to step out in love for you and for others in the way that you have called us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.